Hello and welcome to the Light from Light podcast. My name is Brother Thomas Therese. I'm a Dominican friar and a son of the English province. And today I'm joined by Brother Albert. Welcome to the podcast, Brother Albert. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Um, uh, I'm just in Leicester at the moment, um, having finished my placement or nearly finished my placement in our priory there. Yeah, so over the summer, uh, Dominican students are placed in one of the houses around the province. Uh, and we do some apostolic work, uh, apostolic work there and get to uh, spend some time in the houses, meet the the uh, people, get to know people a bit better and things like that and sort of live the life because each of our houses is ever so slightly different. Um, so, yeah, so that's roughly what you've been doing in Leicester, more or less. <laughs> yes. And uh, um, you'll be back with us before too long, hopefully. Indeed so, on Monday. Excellent. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, because you're quite uniquely placed, actually, to talk about um, the subject of the Reformation in England, uh, which is our podcast episode today, again, suggested suggested by uh, a viewer, because you yourself have actually not always been Catholic, right? I suppose we're all, to some extent, a product of the Reformation, even, you know, Catholics have, have reformed many times, so uh, throughout the, the centuries and things. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I was raised as an Anglican. Um, I was born in Surrey and uh, I went to university at the London School of Economics, um, not to study economics, but to study anthropology. Um, and then I went to Oxford to study more anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, while I was there, I began to think about... Um, uh, ordained ministry in the Church of England. And um, I was planning on doing a doctorate um, uh, on some collections in the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is the uh, archaeological and anthropological museum in Oxford. And um, instead of that, I went off to three parishes in North London um, for a kind of propedeutic year before um, going to theological college. Um, Let me just stop you there. What does a, What is a propedeutic year? Propedeutic so... Um, Basically, uh, before you start formal studies, there's a kind of year of preparation. Catholics have it as well. Um, sometimes it's done at a parish. Sometimes it's done at the English College in Valladolid. Um, we, of course, as Dominicans have one. It's the novitiate. Um, and um, it's quite popular amongst Anglicans to put um, potential ordinance in parishes to see what they're like in a parish for a year before they go to theological college. Um, so it's a kind of year of preparation where you're living some kind of regular life, um, usually with other people, um, getting yourself ready for um, formal studies. Mm. And then you um, came across the you came across the Dominicans. I did. So I came across the Dominicans in Oxford um, when I was studying. Um, I lived next door at Pusey House, um, which is a very um, high church Anglican institution. Um, and because I was quite a traditional Anglican as far as questions about the ordination of women was concerned, um, there weren't very many places I could go to the Eucharist outside of um, the holidays, outside of term, because Pusey House closed down. So I would sort of sit at the back of Blackfriars, and that's how I first met the Dominicans, actually, was um, through their preaching ministry at, at the Masses. Um, obviously, I couldn't receive communion, go to Mass like every other Catholic can, so I just sort of sat and listened to the homilies and... Um, attended mass um so that's yeah. how i met the dominicans um, what was it that actually then so by that stage actually you were still an anglican right so what was it then that uh encouraged you to become a catholic um so i think the 
uh, for a number of Anglican converts, I think there's there's a kind of two way process. It's it's a kind of um, positive thing. There's a kind of attraction to the Catholic Church, and there's also a kind of negative thing, um, which is something that you can't quite work out or fit in in the Church of England. Um, and uh, I think a key thing in conversions really is to to make sure that um, the reason why you're becoming Catholic is positive. And I always think that if you spend too long staying in the Church of England, I think quite often sometimes it can just become overly negative. And I think the things that really attracted me about the Catholic Church were the truth of the Catholic faith, the fact that it held together as a as a as a set of principles, um, and just the the coherence of the teaching, mm. um, and. And I lived a, a, a I have, the sacraments were an important part of my life as an Anglican, and I wanted sacramental assurance. I wanted assurance that the sacraments I was, was receiving to be valid and Catholic sacraments. And so that's mm. the main reason I became a Catholic. Because, um, yeah, I mean, when you talk about being a, a high church Anglican, there are many similarities, right? There are many of the same beliefs. The, uh, you would uh, go to Mass at an Anglican parish and, and all the rest of it. So... What then for you was, where, where did the sticking point come? Where did the differences come? Because for many people, it looks exactly the same. And many people still feel very comfortable there and still feel very at home there and uh, focus on a lot of the similarities. So, I mean, how did that change for you? What was it that changed? Um, I think it was mainly, um, I remember very distinctly a couple of moments when I thought actually that that there were some moral problems that I just couldn't cope with within the Church of England and that I needed the coherent teaching of the Catholic Church in order to be able to better articulate what I believed about moral questions. So just, um, but just also, to be clear, just to be clear then, so th th this was a matter of uh, moral teaching rather than, say, finding that the Catholic Church was impeccable. So finding that the Catholic Church's teaching on morals was was uh, good and clear rather than seeing that its members were without sin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was clearly, uh, uh, I think, I remember very distinctly somebody um, in a meeting arguing from an Anglican perspective for um, abortion. And I thought, actually, I couldn't stay in, a, in an, an ecclesial communion that, that advocated that. Um, and where there wasn't a clear line about um, about the problems with abortion and and a teaching against it. Um, mm. And I think the other thing that really changed for me was that um, Anglo-Catholicism is, is based on sort of a series of principles, one of which is a kind of branch theory where, where the idea is that the Church of England is part of the Catholic Church and it's just, um, uh, it's the Catholic Church in England which is, is um, slightly... Um, cut off from the main Catholic Church, but still part of the Catholic Church. And I came to the conclusion that this just wasn't true um, and uh, that I wanted to be in communion with, with the Catholic Church. Um, I wanted to stand up every Sunday at Mass and say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, church. and I mean it without any kind of, of um, qualification. Mm. Um, that's very it's very interesting how does this so you i suppose like me one of our one of our pastimes as it were uh, is history you know i'm very fond of papal history and in particular also uh, reformation uh history and i know that the same thing is also true of you 
how did your love of history then play into your decision to convert? Um, well, I suppose I started to think a little bit more clearly about um, the history of the of the Church of England and and really see um, that there was some issues with the the vision that was presented, um, and that was. I mean, a key kind of part of the intellectual movement towards the Catholic faith. Mm. So probably that's probably a good segue into the actual episode for today about the the, the Reformation historically. Um, what is it then that we're talking about when we talk about the Reformation, sort of generally speaking? Um, so uh, I think it's often portrayed as a kind of, as just simply a, reli a, a religious question. But I think it was more deeply um, a series of social questions, um, changes in society, which led to uh, a number of problems which had been uh, uh, dormant for a number of times or been kind of rumbling on for a number for centuries, really, which um, really came to the fore and led to uh, a series of movements arguing for reform uh, across the European continent. Um, beginning with Luther in Germany, but spreading um, mm. further across across uh, Northern Europe and into England. What would you say then are, because sometimes you can hear people make a distinction between the Reformation as it is in Europe, uh, as it takes place in Europe, and the Reformation as it takes place in England. What would you say are some of the similarities early on in those very early days of Martin Luther, of Calvin, of Zwingli, um, actually, actually, it's probably worthwhile just saying at the moment, what were some of the fundamental issues for Luther, Zwingli, uh, and and Calvin? What were for for those early those early Protestants? What were what were the central the central themes and issues? I know it's quite a <laughs> quite a broad question. What are some of those central themes and issues, and were they an important factor in the Reformation in England? To the same extent so i think um the most obvious issue was the problem of the corruption of the church um and i think actually a lot of it really begins with um the um the ways in which the the church was uh corrupted and was needing some kind of reform and needing um a series of of changes to be made in its its governing structures later on i think it takes on a more doctrinal form really um and but initially it's it's things like money raised being raised to 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 rebuild st peter's in rome and um dodgy dealings in the episcopacy and it's those kinds of structural issues which are the first things that are the problem um, it only becomes something more doctrinal, I think, a little bit later. And you see what we might call an ecclesiological then sort of, I suppose, a paradigm shift in how ecclesiology is is seen. By that, I mean, you see a change from um, what is what is actually believed fundamentally about the church then between uh, the traditional Catholic teaching about the church and then what comes to be believed by Luther and Zwingli and all the others and then they sort of fracture off don't they and um, depending on the Eucharist Luther has a different view of the Eucharist and Zwingli and slightly different uh, places for um, Our Lady and for 
works and faith and justification and things like that. So you have lots of sort of intellectual theological things going on as well as political things going on um, and and stuff like that. How how do the theological arguments uh, that you see in Europe? Do I mean do the th- does the theological argument that's going on in Europe and the church trying to reform herself because of course ref- reform was on the agenda before Martin Luther within the Catholic Church it just hadn't come to happen yet the council hadn't been called yet so is there a sort of is there a connection between the um, theological debates that are happening on the continent and uh the reformation in england uh, at the beginning or is that something that, that that comes later is it more of a political question like well, for example if we look at the 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 king right if we look at henry and the aristocracy and how do they first respond to the reformation in europe so i mean historically in england it had always been something which was cracked down on um you have earlier kinds of um, of reforming agendas like Lollardy and um, which was a very big thing in Kent and then um, Wycliffe. You, yeah, and you have attempts at, at reform from a from the um, from below in in England. Um, and actually, you know, Henry VIII originally um, was very much anti Luther. He famously wrote his. Um, his defense of the seven sacraments, which he was given the title defender of the faith by the Pope. Um, so initially, actually, the um, the reaction was quite negative. And a lot of these ideas actually really are just imported. Um, it takes, I mean, if you think that Luther wrote his, um, the, or nailed his theses to the door of the cathedral in 1517, which is the sort of dates that we celebrate as Reformation Day, and which we celebrated 500 years of a few years ago, um it takes a good while it takes like four years for there to be a kind of approving homily about luther's ideas given in england so i mean a lot of them are just simply imported and it's it's i always find it quite interesting really to think that that henry viii's views religious views don't really seem to be fixed um initially when he uh, makes himself head of the church of england he makes very minor adjustments um, and, you know, later on, just as he's sort of maybe moving towards a more Lutheran direction, in his later life, he actually reacts against Protestantism. Um, and and so you have this kind of curious lack of, of settlement in his vision. Um, and I think that's the, the key difference. The key difference for, for the Reformation in England in the British Isles is really that it's state-sponsored. It's something which is done by the state um, and is uh, not done in that way in the continent because they don't have the same state apparatus that we have. Um, because Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, when he came to the throne, had come to the throne at the end of a very, very turbulent period of British history, um, of English history. His was the longest reign for 25 years he was on the throne. It's the longest reign we'd had for, for years and years and years. And his desire was to centralise power. And it was only because Henry VII had centralised power that Henry VIII was able to impose um, his religious views, his religious um, edict on um, on edicts on on the English people. Mm. 
That's quite interesting. Uh, so at the beginning, then the the establishment, as it were, were actually initially very hostile towards Protestantism, and you have the the first sermon being the first Protestant sermon being preached in Cambridge, and very much a resistance. You have Henry um, writing a defense of the of the seven sacraments against Luther, uh, and people sort of coming in and uh, from from Europe trying to sort of import uh, import Protestantism um, so then why then does it change what what changes and you say that it comes from a sort of a top-down sort of imposition upon the church now one of the things that this sort of reminds me of is or, or plays into should I say is the relationship between the church and the state as it was back then, because of course this is in the wake of people like um, the 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 fight between Thomas Becket and Henry II, which really establishes the church more sort of firmly as a counterbalance to the authority of the state and the king, uh, where the king is sort of publicly flogged in front of St Thomas Becket's, uh, or should I say St Thomas of Canterbury's, uh, St Thomas of Canterbury's um, tomb uh, in front of Canterbury Cathedral. Um, because of his bad behavior and because of the martyrdom of somebody who had been his friend. And of course, Henry takes a, a sledgehammer basically to the shrine of St. Thomas and uh, tries to blot out his cult because Thomas is the symbol of the power of the church as a counterbalance against the authority of the monarch and of the state. Um, and this, so all of this sort of then comes from the top. You have this sort of top-down sort of imposition of religious change from the aristocracy and the ruling elite on the people who enjoy their feasts and and uh, and all the rest of it. Why did the aristocracy get to get to that stage? What what happened? For example, if we take Henry, what was going on with with Henry? Why did why did that change come with him? So, I mean, he needed a son because uh, if you think about the history of the the, the period before the Tudors, um, before 1485, there had been a huge amount of dynastic problems. Um, there were uncertain successions and um, short reigns and um, kings who ruled from a very young age and with um, the help of regents. So England was quite unstable and Henry VII wanted to secure his dynasty. And he was very political about things like his marriage. He married um, an opposition, a, a woman from the opposition um, to cement the dynasty. The famous thing is the Tudor Roses, the, is both the Roses of York and Lancaster, the two warring houses. So there's this idea that you have this peace in the kingdom. And so Henry needs to continue that and he needs to get a male heir who's going to be of the right age to to rule on his own when Henry dies. Um, of course, that doesn't happen. Um, his wife, Catherine of Aragon, gives him one daughter. She has a lot of miscarriages and stillbirths, and she has very um, painful experiences with pregnancy. And um, she um, gives Henry a daughter, Mary. Um, and the the problem for henry wants a way out so actually henry was the second son of henry the seventh he wasn't the first son the first son was arthur and arthur marries uh, catherine but the marriage wasn't consummated and so it leaves him free uh, to once arthur dies um very soon after the marriage marriage is not consummated means that um catherine can be married to arthur's brother henry who becomes the heir apparent um whether this is a kind of 
invented scruple, whether it's an actual scruple. But Henry comes to the conclusion, he says, that his marriage is not valid. Uh, it should never. He should never have married Catherine in the first place because she was um, her. She was Henry's brother's wife. Um, so he requests a divorce, uh, an annulment, in fifteen twenty seven. It's not granted. It's and then, just really important just to make the point there that divorce and annulment are two very are two very different things. <laughs> so he requests an annulment, um, uh, and uh, the annulment's not granted. Um, and he continues to try, um, and he tries for a number of years, and it brings down his uh, right-hand man, Cardinal Wolsey, who can't get this, this annulment, um, and eventually he takes matters into his own hand and essentially tries to chop the head off of the church in England. So what he tries to do is to cut off all um, attempts at... Um, some kind of appeal to the papacy which of course was what Catherine was trying to do Catherine was appealing her case constantly to Rome um, in order to ensure that uh, the, the, the the validity of her marriage was upheld. That's actually a very interesting connection with us as Dominicans of course because the trial of the marriage bond between Henry and Catherine was held at Blackfriars in London um, as was the opening the state opening of parliament the year that uh, Henry sort of declared himself the head of the church in England, which is something else I know we'll talk about in a little bit. I, I just want to talk a little bit maybe about Catherine of Aragon's reputation at the time. She, I think, was the most well-loved uh, royal, uh, really, in England, more so than her husband. She, whilst Henry had been off fighting wars in France, Catherine of Aragon had put down a rebellion in Scotland, and she was known as quite fierce you know she's the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain uh, she knows her progeny she knows that she's um, uh, she knows where she comes from and she knows that she is the daughter of uh, formidable monarchs uh, in Spain and she's well loved she's well loved by the people so when she sees at the defense of the of her marriage she sees that Henry isn't going to be swayed uh, she has a Dominican uh, confessor in council as her as her lawyer. She also has St. John Fisher, of course, who falls foul of Henry later. And um, there's a uh, Cardinal Wolsey is there. You also have a legate uh, from the Pope, Cardinal Campaggio. And Catherine has a right as a as a Catholic queen to have her case heard by the Pope. So when she pleads with Henry on her knees in front of all of these people, um, and sees that he's basically sort of saying, get up, you know, you're making me look bad. She then rises to her feet and she demands that her case is heard by the Pope in Rome. And she refuses to recognize the legitimacy of the council. Cardinal Campaggio then decides, yes, this will be heard by the Pope, as is her, as is her right. Uh, and when she leaves, of course, people are shouting, God save the queen. And she gives her arms and off she off, off she wanders. <laughs> so then it goes to Rome, as I'll, as Brother Albert was saying. And um, and uh, the Pope says, no, actually, the marriage is intact. Um, and this is one of the things that St. Thomas More, uh, one, one of the things that, that St. Thomas More finds very difficult. He says, well, you know, we asked the Pope to grant a dispensation for reasons of state, and now we're asking the Pope to dispense with his dispensation for reasons of the state. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, 
So and what I also find very interesting is if on the grounds, uh, if, if, if um, basically on the same grounds that Henry was trying to seek an annulment, Henry himself would have been declared illegitimate based on a previous marriage that had happened earlier and something that had happened earlier in, 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 in history. Henry himself would have been declared illegitimate on the same grounds that he was trying to declare this, this marriage, uh, this, the, get this marriage annulled. Something that I find um, uh, quite a funny sort of aside. Sort of history. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, getting, getting, <laughs> sorry, getting back to the point. Um, we have this trial of the marriage in in uh, Blackfriars in London. It doesn't go the way that Henry wants. Uh, the Pope in, uh, hears the, the case and determines that the marriage bond is intact and it's a matter of divine law. And so therefore, you know, that's it. You know, you're married, <laughs> whether you like it or not. Um, what What happens next? What does Henry do? Does he just sort of say, OK, you know, you are the vicar of Christ on earth and, you know, you have this authority as the successor of Peter to be able to settle these disputes and to determine these things. You know, is that is that the route that Henry goes down? Alas, not, but it would have been nice if it was. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it would have been nice to think wonder what would have happened if it had happened that way. But um, so what he tries to do is to just chop the head off of the church in England. Um, any, um, basically any... Uh, attempt at uh, recourse to the Pope is is cut off. And it's quite interesting the things that he goes for. So one is that he re renews a, a piece of legislation from the 14th century, Prima Nere, which um, basically stops people from, stops the clergy from, um, from going to the Pope uh, and requesting things from the Pope. But it also um, has the effect of, of um, forcing the clergy to pay a load of money. So you mentioned that Fisher was one of Catherine of Aragon's great supporters, and John Fisher. Um, he was one of the main reasons that Henry went after the clergy of the Southern, uh, what's called the Convocation of Canterbury, which is it's still used in the church. It's a term still used in the Church of England today um, for the Southern province of the Church of England in England, um, and. Um, uh, he gets a load of money from them because um, they did him wrong. So that's the first thing that he does. Um, but then he he passes a series of pieces of legislation. Um, that was 1531. And then 1532 is the act in, of uh, suppression or the act of, in, of submission of the clergy, I think. Um, that's 1532. And that basically, again, places the uh, clergy under royal command, essentially. Um, and interestingly, the next thing he goes after um, uh, was Peter's Pence. He had a um, he went after Peter's Pence in 1533. Um, Peter's Pence being that every year every Catholic gives one pence to the Pope. Um, we still have Peter's Pence today, um, but it was a more formalised thing back then. Um, and uh, he basically says that all of that's going to him now. Um, and then finally you get the 1534 Act of Supremacy, which is where he declares himself to be the head of the church in England. Um, and uh, it's a very interesting document, partly because of this whole kind of centralization thing that we had in England much earlier than any other country. It's the first time that um, England is described as having an imperial crown. It's the first time that England is described as kind of like an empire. Um, 
and so it's that kind of, it's one of those first sort of expressions of of english identity in a kind of state way um and so he makes himself supreme head of the church in england people have to swear the oath of supremacy which you had to swear in this country it's interesting catholics couldn't take degrees in universities they couldn't take um, seats in parliament because they couldn't swear the act of supremacy and so it was a way it was basically catholics were removed from social life because they couldn't swear the oath um, and uh, the 15 after the act of supremacy you get the treason act which makes it a treasonable crime to deny the supremacy and not take the oath which is what happens to st thomas more and to st john fish and neither of them both refuse to take the oath um, and there's refusal across a number of different religious orders, um, most famous being the Charter House, the Carthusians in the centre of London, who refused to take the oath. There's a very beautiful account of their martyrdom um, where they they meet in chapter to discuss whether they're going to take the the, act, the, the oath, whether they can swear the oath. Um, and they say a mass of the Holy Spirit as a community, a conventional mass of the Holy Spirit. And... Um, refuse to take the oath and they're taken away to the tower and then they're eventually martyred. Um, so you do get these pockets of, of some resistance um, within religious houses. It's um, very interesting there you, you spoke about the um, uh, Henry uh, being made head of the church in England by act of parliament or like a parliament somehow has this authority to be <laughs> to, like parliament has the authority to make him the head of the church in england in some way uh I, and this is the point that thomas more fights for it's not just that he has problems with how henry has handled the divorce um it's also that henry tries to give himself an authority that he does not have and thomas more says that you know jesus christ gave this authority to Peter and his successors while he lived on earth. Parliament has no authority to do these things. And he also makes the point that Henry um, has uh, gone against Magna Carta, which, uh, of course, keeps the independence uh, of the church against the state, partially for this, this counterbalance and to prevent interference in, in internal church uh, governance and things like that. Um, so I, I find that's actually a, a, a very sort of interesting point. Um, maybe sort of bringing it forward a bit. So you, by this time, then you have martyrs like uh, Fisher and Moore, the Carthusians that you spoke about. Um, what then happens to the friaries and the monasteries? Because, of course, you have the dissolution of the monasteries, the dissolution of the friaries where these religious houses are closed down and stripped of their assets what's all that about what's going on there is this is this still during henry's reign yep so um after uh, 1536 um uh he begins to go after the smaller religious houses the smaller religious houses are dissolved first because they're easier to to kind of wrap up um and then he goes after the larger houses between 1538 and 1540. um so the dissolution of the monastery is an interesting one, partly because um, this had been going on for a while, but it obviously took on a religious significance. One of the big differences was that um, now we have somebody called uh, Thomas Cromwell uh, in charge. So Thomas Cromwell has kind of taken over from Thomas More as, um, as uh, Henry's right-hand man. And Thomas Cromwell is a convinced Protestant. 
And this is the aspect of, of the reform in England, which takes on a very particular Protestant view, which is the destruction of the religious life. Um, this had, I say this has a longer history, partly because on, in a number of, of, uh, on a number of occasions in the Middle Ages, the, um, the crown had confiscated religious property. If you think that at the time of the Reformation, and really actually it was pretty stable all the way through the Middle Ages, somewhere between 20% and 30% of, of the land in the country was owned by the church. Mm. This meant that actually it was quite an attractive, an attractive prospect if you needed money. Um, and Henry needed money because he was fighting loads of wars, but, and that was the case across the Middle Ages. The, the state took church land because it needed money. Um, the thing that changed, I suppose, at the beginning, and this is why Henry's reign at the beginning is quite interesting, because at the early period between 1509 and the sort of mid-1520s, um, you know, he was a devoutly Catholic monarch, and he was actually trying to reform religious houses. So there are a number of religious houses which were too small, there are a number of religious houses which weren't living the religious life, and so he sent round, um, actually it was Cromwell who went round, because he was um, the assistant to Wolsey at that point. Wolsey mm. was his boss. Um, and he went around and he shut a load of religious houses. So in some ways he already, I mean, he was preparing himself, I suppose, for, um, for his uh, bigger exploits in the end of the 1530s. Um, but the first thing they do is go after the smaller religious houses. They make inquiries about the religious life in the houses, how well the religious life is led, um, any problems with the life, um, any scandals. Um, they um, make a big thing about relics and they say, you know, they're, they're ripping off the local inhabitants with these bogus relics. And so then it starts to take on a much more um, Protestant flavour. Um, so yeah, um, most of um, the religious houses will close by 1540. All of their lands have been given over to the king. And of course, the people who win out of all of this are this kind of emerging middle class of gentry you go to a lot of national trust properties which is something i do enjoy doing um you will discover that quite a few of them actually were religious houses which were handed over to local gentry who turned them into their little country houses yes. so all of these manor houses are actually old priories that's why they're mm. called something priory or something you know abbey or um downtown abbey being a, so a you, good fictional have, example yeah what um, you have there then is basically a, a religious house that would have housed you know let's say 20 people and would have been uh, a place where the poor could, uh, you know, find arms and weary travellers find refuge and the sick very often would come. And now all of that is confiscated and becomes the property of one family. Yeah. Uh, and I know here in Oxford, for example, there's an abbey just down the river from us. And that was a house of Benedictine nuns um, that, that housed a fair few Benedictine nuns. And that became the home of uh, Henry VIII's personal physician and his family now it's a massive ruin and it's a, a shell of what it was before but uh, i can and, and a lot of course a lot of the the religious houses there would have been involved in education uh not only of the wealthy but also of the poor and uh, they would have uh, uh, performed agriculture on the land uh, and they also would have ran uh hospitals hospices and um uh, arms houses and things like that so essentially what you have actually is the destruction of the closest thing to the welfare state yeah. that that, that uh, england has at the time 
And it's interesting, actually, that you don't get... So the idea of poor laws, which is something which we're kind of familiar with from, you know, the uh, from this period onwards, we don't have poor laws before the Reformation. We don't need poor laws because, actually, there is a, a social structure which keeps mm. people um, from destitution. But all of a sudden, once that goes, you know, unemployment rises, you know, there's no safety net. And so you have to have these these poor laws which are introduced. And then you have, uh, you know, Edward VI, uh, Henry's son, is very famous, his eventual son, is very famous for these grammar schools. You get all these grammar schools around yes. the country called Edward VI Grammar School, yeah. going back to the 16th century. But they were actually only for the middle classes because mm. they had to produce something because there yeah. were no monasteries anymore. The same thing with uh, in, in Elizabethan times, you know, you have blue coat, green coat, red coat. Uh, school and it was basically based on the uniform that was there but again yeah you're right though for uh, by and large for middle class families uh, or if not if not upward of middle class shall we say uh, families um, who could afford to go and and this is what, then when you get um, uh, you also get other other institutions sort of beginning to form because they realize there's nobody here to do the valuable work that was being done previously by religious like hospitals and schools they'd basically shredded the 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 welfare system in england um yeah so i suppose sort of moving on then from from henry since we started talking about edward did things uh let up for uh, during the edwardian reign or did things get better or worse for catholics what was going on um, so things got in many ways worse, partly because the um, so you get the first kind of sets of prayer books. The, lot, the first prayer book is under Henry, um, but the you get a series of prayer books starting um, to be written by Cranmer, um, and so they take on a much more Protestant flavour. Mm. Um, and so um, you then get um, a much more Protestant reign. Um, Partly because, I mean, Edward is a is a young king. He's not reached majority, so he has a series of protectors. Um, they come from very Protestant families, um, and so he um, Cranmer creates this prayer book, which is um, kind of Zwinglian, the first um, prayer book. Um, almost, it's it's even you know it's 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 more radical Protestantism than even Calvin, I suppose. Um, and that's the the kind of height of Protestantism in England, um, and yeah, it's pretty grim, really. Churches are, whereas a lot of Henry's changes have been quite modest. Um, Edward's are much more far-reaching. So you you end up with whitewashed churches, and this is the first time that glass is 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 taken out of, wi of windows, and um, the first time that you don't have. The use of the altar you have a prayer a sort of wooden table put in um and uh so it's a much more protestant form of worship you also have things like the altar stone which of course is uh consecrated with with relics and holy oil and everything sometimes you'll have that removed from the from the center of the altar and put as the stone leading into the church so people had to stand on it as yeah. they were walking into church I mean, in what sense is that not pernicious, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, really awful. Um, so, yeah, so you see a continuation of the destruction of the monasteries and friaries then under, under Edward and this sort of iconoclasm, which uh, makes Mary sort of um, very upset. I remember reading somewhere that Mary was always actually quite fond of Edward 
um, and tried to sort of steer him uh, in in a, in a Catholic uh, direction. And he would make her cry by coming up with what she would call all of these awful blasphemies. And um, it was a very sweet sort of love that a sister has for has for her brother. Um, so, but Edward dies young, doesn't he? He doesn't. He does. He doesn't yeah, he doesn't. Long. No. Uh, so, fifteen forty-seven, he cut, takes the throne after Henry's death in January fifteen forty. I think it's January fifteen forty-seven, and then he dies. He's a very sickly child. Dies in fifteen fifty-three, mm. and Mary comes to the throne after some shenanigans by the Protestants in their attempts to put a queen on the throne to to stop uh, Mary coming to the throne, and that's actually one of the most awful things I think that they did, because Lady Jane Grey was. I mean, she was still a child really by um the time she they tried to put her on the throne with these kind of curious machinations just because um, they didn't want a catholic right? just because they didn't want a catholic um but then uh mary comes to the throne um one of the things i find very interesting about mary's reign and it's one thing that you find a lot in eamon duffy's um books um and it, it's a really an attempt to kind of undermine this idea that the Reformation was something that was welcomed by the English population. There's this kind of um, view of history where basically, you know, um, superstition is done away with, you know, good Protestantism yes, is put yeah. on the on the on oh, the we table. Understand and, it because it was in know, Latin and people um, didn't want the Latin and people didn't want all these relics and feast days and all the rest of it. Eamon Duffy does a good job at basically saying that was skewering that argument. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that's really good about it, I mean, you can tell that it's wrong because Mary would not have been able to reimpose the Catholic faith in that way. People talk about the reimposition of the Catholic faith. Um, you know, it, she wouldn't have been able to just simply impose it. Um, so uh, there was clearly some sentiment and you can see it because people tend Especially to tended to north, I think. yeah yeah um people tended to um keep things like the missiles were kept the vestments were kept all of these things were kept and they were put away so whenever you it's interesting when they like redo the roof in an oxford college an old oxford college mm. or um i remember it happening in winchester a school mm. in um, winchester um where uh, which is uh, attached to new college oxford um the um they redid a ceiling and they poked around a bit and out came four books of music four books of plain chant mm. from um just after mary's reign they'd been hidden there um so there was a kind of hope on the part of some that 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 the catholic faith would be restored i think it's a sign that actually they did hope that that the catholic faith would be restored um mm. and you know there wasn't a, a kind of um, the idea of Bloody Mary, which we have from sort of old-fashioned school textbooks, I think, is is a misguided one. Elizabeth killed more people than Mary, no, but she's yeah. Gloriana. I, I, yeah. feel, I always feel a little bit sorry for uh, feel a bit sorry for Mary because she had so many disasters. She had this sort of failed marriage with the with um, uh, the the Spanish king. Uh, she had famine. She had plague, and she was supposed to be the return of the Golden Age. Um, and that's why it was sort of such a tragedy, really. And then you have, of course, Elizabeth uh, coming to the throne 
afterwards. So whilst Mary sort of tries to return chalices, investments and books and things, she's sort of left with not very money, not not very much money in, in the coffers with which to replace the things that had been taken because the chalices had been melted down for gold and replaced with cups, hadn't they? To make the point that the mass is not a sacrifice because, of course, Catholics believe that the mass is a propitiatory sacrifice and Protestants don't, <laughs> basically, uh, <laughs> to put it funny. Um so then you have uh, Mary then trying to put, uh, uh, re restore a lot of these things. And then Elizabeth comes to the throne. And what happens with, with Elizabeth at the beginning? So basically, Elizabeth attempts um, the, the kind of vision of it, I suppose, is um, that we have from this kind of old fashioned textbooks is that Elizabeth basically creates the settlement, which essentially establishes religion in England forever um and so we have the idea that um through the elizabethan set settlement which is basically designed to be not too catholic but not too protestant um you have the founding of what is essentially anglicanism um the problem with this view and this is one of the things that i think we have a we we almost like to think that, that the reformation for us started in like 1530 and ended in 1570 um, but it didn't. I mean, you know, the, the Reformation continued because, again, you had a monarch who um, didn't get married or, you know, didn't produce an heir, again, didn't produce an heir because she didn't get married, unlike her father who got married six times um, or at least attempted marriage six times. Um, and uh, you have this attempt to, uh, at kind of stabilising the dynasty, but you don't have an heir to do it. And... Um, for Elizabeth was concerned about a number of plots against her. Now, there's some sign that there were political plots against her, and certainly Mary's um, husband, the King of Spain, wanted to, to, to try and invade, which is why we have the Spanish Armada. Um, but a lot of the plots that were there were, were essentially, a you know, the idea of plots was, was formed because of a distrust of, of Catholics, um, because... Um, she was excommunicated by the Pope and she cracked down on Catholics. Um, so that's uh, Pope St. Pius V who excommunicates, uh, who's a Dominican, of course. Yes, uh, who great Dominican saint. Um, excommunicates Elizabeth uh, with the bull Regnum in excelsis, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. I could be, I could be, is it Reg? It is, Regnans in excelsis. Regnans in excelsis. And what sort of effect does that have on Catholics actually in, in England? Like, do, is this something that plays in their favour or not really? Well, no, it doesn't. Because, of course, then you have... This is really the beginning of what the idea that being a Catholic is anti-English. Yeah. Because um, uh, if the Queen of England is not a Queen, if she's excommunicated and she's declared not to be the Queen of England by the Pope, then Catholics... Um, the idea uh, the Protestants have is that Catholics are obliged to to undertake acts to get rid of her, which isn't actually true, right? I mean, you know, it's not true that Catholics are obliged to undertake, um, and it wasn't even that, you know, it wasn't then the, the case that Catholics are obliged to undertake political intrigue to try and get rid of a monarch they don't they don't like. Um, so it basically. Um, makes being a Catholic, a, a Catholic priest, a treasonable offence. If you're found to be a Catholic priest in the in England, then you will be you would be executed. Um, 
the average, I think the average life expectancy of a priest on the missions in England was something like five years. Mm. Um, so um, they would go to Rome, come from Rome, land in England, and within five years, a lot of them were executed, um, captured and executed. Um, and uh, this is the point at which Catholics have to take refuge with particular families. So particular Catholic families would be um, recusants because they would refuse the new religion. They would um, uh, they would refuse to to submit to the new religion, and they provided um, hospitality to priests um, who would say mass for them. And you kind of have these little Catholic enclaves. They're quite interesting people because they they would often have Catholic servants because one way that you could ensure the secrecy of what was going on was that you employed Catholics because you wouldn't employ a Protestant because they dob you into the police. Well, not the police, but they would, you know, they would get the authorities on you. And so you have these people who spend their life trying to catch clergy, trying to catch Catholic priests. Um, so it marks what is really quite a grim time for Catholics um, and um, a kind of, there is something of a division within the Catholic um, uh, within the Catholic population of England between those who do actually want to engage in an attempt to remove the sovereign and those that don't, um, those that um, that just simply want to try and live something of a Catholic life um, clandestinely. So then how does, I mean, we've spoken a lot about, you know, the Church of England. I mean, what what is the, how does the Church of England today then relate to the Church of England then and the Church pre-Reformation? Like, what sort of relationship is there? Because sometimes, I mean, some of my Anglican friends will say, uh, as you said earlier, you know, we are the Catholic Church in England. Um, what sort of relationship does the Anglican, I mean, does the Anglican Church today in modern times, um, is it a continuation from from uh, of the Anglican Church from the reformation era or even the pre-reformation era has there been a, a disruption or i mean what's going on so it's quite interesting and this is why Eng the english reformation is so strange is that um you know they were, because it was state imposed the buildings i mean the, the people in the buildings actually kind of continued right so the bishops uh, you know many of them accepted the royal supremacy there's one bishop and i can't remember who where where he was bishop of but he survived the end of, I think he was, in, in, he was made bishop by Henry. He survived Edward and Mary and Elizabeth. And I think, to be honest, if he'd been made to become a Hindu, he probably would have just said oh. yes. Because, I mean, you know, it was one of those things where he was accepting all of these different, you know, interpretations of things um, and just stayed in place. So the, the kind of curious thing about the English Reformation is that a lot of the people were, were there. A lot of the institutions didn't change; they just simply became Protestant. Um, the the curious thing, the thing that always that makes me laugh in some ways, um, is recently the Church of England apologised for the expulsion of the Jews from Lincoln. I think it was in something like twelve ninety six. Yeah. And to my mind, and probably to yours, that strikes me as completely mad, because why would an institution apologize for something which predates it for an event which didn't they did they patently didn't do um so uh 
but for for the Church of England, they, they, in some sense, as far as they're concerned, it, it was their action because you know it was uh, they see themselves as very much in continuity with the medieval Catholic Church, and they just see themselves as a continu continuation. And it was just that you know the personnel were the same. Some views changed, and um, the Church uh, became uh, basically um, part of the state. Um, so the, the the Church of England likes to see itself in a kind of continuity with the with what came before. For Catholics, mm -hmm. this this obviously it's not something that we could agree with. Um, but there is a real desire to to see um, to see the the kind of continuity there. Is there anything else that I mean? We we've got to wrap up now. We've only got about ten minutes left. I mean, Dan's been very kind in uh, letting us go on, <laughs> letting us go on for an hour in this episode. Um, is there anything else that you, any other interesting points that you'd like to make about the Reformation in England or anything, anything relating to it? Um, I think one of the interesting things is that is is this question of how it re how the reformation kind of continues now um or has this kind of continued impact um with this kind of idea that that catholicism is is kind of anti-english mm. which is completely mad really when you look at the kind of when you look at the wider history of england yes um you know that we call england mary's dowry um you know it was a deeply catholic country um it was, you know, the people of England were attached to the Catholic faith. And it was really only a kind of long period of of Protestant monarchy, which um, which meant that um, we became so attached to Anglicanism. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing that's worth kind of highlighting, I suppose, is um, we tend to think of of the Reformation on the continent as taking a very long time. And we talk, you know, we, we say how different we are to the continent where they had the wars of religion and, you know, this went on forever and a day and nobody could decide whether they're Protestant or whether they're Catholic. But it, I think it's, you know, the more we look at the history of, of the 16th and 17th centuries, the more we see that the religious wars continue, you know, that the Reformation continued in, in England and that there was a religious war. I mean, the the civil war in England the three civil wars in England between in the 1640s up until the 16 until 1651 um they were religious wars in part yeah. granted that there was something of it which was about um about the king's power but actually that was also bound up with with questions of religion yes um you know we got rid of a king because he was a catholic mm. um James II was got rid of because he was a catholic and you still um, can't be a Catholic monarch, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So when we think about these things um, as being, oh, just, you know, it was all over by 1570, I think, you know, mm. we're we're kind of... Everyone remembers the gunpowder plot as being like the Catholic plot against James I, but it's worth remembering that at the very beginning of his reign, there was an attempt um, to replace him with his um, Catholic, I think, cousin, Arabella Stewart. Um, so, you know, the idea that everything was over by 1570 is kind of misguided, I think. Mm. 1570, of course, being uh, during Elizabeth's reign. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Oh, well, there was something else I was going to say, and I completely forgot what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was it. I mean, because you see these sort of swathes of anti-Catholic persecution sort of later on in the 1800s and the 1900s. And I think that there's even a little bit of a residual anti-Catholicism even now, uh, you know, in uh, in some parts of, of society. Um, but you see, I mean, the, the, the anti-Gordon riots, I think that that's the 1800s, isn't it? Um, yeah. And e even up until not that long ago, uh, you the way that you got to the the highest you could climb in British society was to be a major or a general in the army. You know, you could die for the country, but that was that was as high as you could go in society. Um, and you could you could become a lawyer, I think, but you couldn't become a judge. Um, and there was this sort of suspicion of this sort of foreign power creeping in called Catholicism. Um, uh, Roman Catholicism, of course, that's where the term comes from, isn't it? Really, Roman yeah. Catholicism, trying to emphasize that, you know, it's not from around these parts. Um, uh, but, the, you, you, I mean, if you look back at the Christianity in the country sort of generally, I mean, of course, you have Celtic Christianity, uh, to use a very loose term, <laughs> sort of coming over from uh, from from Ireland and in the north down through Scotland and things. And then you have, of course, the Pope's mission with Saint, uh, Pope Gregory the, the Great sending St. Augustine of Canterbury over. And Augustine appeals to Rome to sort of say, what am I supposed to do in this situation and that situation? Gregory, of course, says, well, you know, make your own decisions, you know, adapt what you can. Um, and you, you see, even then in the 1100s, uh, um, you see... Uh, uh, St. Thomas of Canterbury, uh, again, going to Rome to uh, appeal in his dispute with Henry II. Uh, you see this, this close relationship develop between England and uh, England and uh, Rome, England and, and the Pope. Um, so I, I always find it really quite a, a strange thing that when I hear it presented as though, oh, no, that was never the case. Um, because actually, yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, that that was the norm up until uh, up until Henry didn't like what he'd what he'd heard, and then you have this sort of narrative spun um, that actually the people didn't like these things, and it was all sort of wicked and evil and foreign and strange um, to try and distance uh, England from from her history. Uh, it's very sad. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brother Albert, for joining us for Sorry. this uh, special hour episode on the Reformation in England. Uh, if you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, comment and subscribe and to uh, share the podcast. If you have any comments, do feel free to uh, leave a, a comment underneath um, if you can. I'm, I should really probably find out a bit more about how these various platforms work. <laughs> I don't know on what platforms you can actually leave a comment and what ones you can't. Um, but uh, next week, I will be back with Dan. Uh, so thank you very much once again, Brother Albert, uh, for your time. And Thank uh, you for having me. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on at, uh, at, at some point to talk about another issue. Thanks very Excellent. much.